0: Hello again, ours technical listeners. This is the fourth and final installment of a four-part interview with neuroscientist, New York Times bestselling author, podcaster, and controversial public intellectual, Sam Harris. We'll pick up with the uplifting theme that we left off on yesterday, which is to say high-tech weaponry that tomorrow's nihilistic suicidal mass murderers might just use to kill very large numbers of us. Before we get started though, a quick note of orientation. As those of you who listened to last week's interview with UCSF neuroscientist Adam Ghazali know, I originally thought this podcast series would be a limited set of just eight episodes, connected to my latest science fiction novel, which is also called After On, and which came out last summer. But the podcast acquired a life of its own, and I'm about to publish episode 38 in the series of eight. As you're about to find out, these first eight episodes have a distinctive format in that each of them ends with a conversation between me and Tom Merritt, who you may know from CNET, from Tech TV, then later from Leo Laporte's network, and now from Tom's own videocast daily tech news show. In these closing conversations, Tom and I discuss the day's interview, but we also talk about a chunk of the book. The segment you're about to hear will end with one of those conversations, and you may, of course, want to skip it. But while there are no real spoilers in there, we do talk about the novel, and you may get lost in a few parts, but... That said, having just re-listened to it, I've got to say it's a pretty fun conversation. Tom is a very good interviewer, and he interviews me in this part. And we do talk about terrorism and other topics covered in my interview with Sam. We also talk about tapeworms and my own strangely extensive background in the Middle East, my mercifully brief experiences in foster care, and some other random yet interesting things. So consider listening to that final bit. And with that, back to my conversation, with Sam Harris
1: do you worry about bioweapons as well? Yeah, you just have to imagine weaponizing something akin to the the Spanish flu, which you know killed f- something like fifty million people in in, in nineteen eighteen yeah, the, the, the sky is the limit there. You could get something that is as easily transmissible and is even more deadly. When you're talking about a bioweapon, the worst possible case is something that is easily transmissible and that doesn't make you floridly ill for long enough for long you to do, as, yeah, yeah, do yeah. as much damage as you possibly can. You right? sneeze
0: a lot yes. on lots of grapes, yeah, for on a, lots of people. For a good long time good before long you time. die. Yes. Yeah, and then those people are sneezing on grapes and people, and then nobody knows there's an outbreak until there's a million infectees or something yeah. like that.
1: Yeah. yeah, something like Ebola doesn't have going for it, as, you know, as bad as it is, as, as horrible as it is, one of the th- reasons why it's not scarier is it is very quickly obvious how sick people are. If you're talking about airborne transmission of something that has, you know, very high mortality and a long incubation period, yeah, weaponize that. That's, that is a civilization canceling an event if we don't don't have our And act for together. now
0: George Church may be the only person who can do it. But in twenty five years with biology following what's sometimes called the Carlson curve, which is even steeper than the Moore's Law curve, who knows when ten people, then a hundred, then a thousand people. So I'd like to close on something yeah. that I wrestle with a lot. You gave a great TED talk on the risk of super AI. I won't make you uh, replay it here because people can access it. I'll just pull two quotes from it to just set the context. You described the the scenario of a super AI having better things to do with our planet and our perhaps our atoms than let us continue to have them as being uh, terrifying and likely to occur. And also saying it's very difficult to see how they won't destroy us and i don't think that those are shrill or irrational statements personally i also don't think it's shrill or irrational to think that what george church alone can do today will be the province of many millions of lab techs probably in our lifetimes and with those two forces out there i don't know what scares me more and i think about proliferating democratizing existentially destructive technology just about the only thing i can think of that might protect us against such a thing would be an incredibly benign super ai yeah. that has functional omniscience because of its its ubiquity in the networks and has functional omnipotence because of its mastery of who knows nanotechnology or something else but boy we're both scared about a super ai it's almost like super ai can't live with them can't live without them yeah how do we navigate those Quinn perils? And do we need to perhaps embrace a super AI as a protective mechanism for democratized super destructive power? Yeah, well, I
1: do think it really isn't a choice. I think we we will develop the most intelligent machines we can build unless something terrible happens to prevent us doing it. Mm-hmm. So the only reason why we wouldn't build... The civilization it's, it's, gets thrown yeah, violently backwards. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. so, you know, George Church... Uh, loses his mind or one of his texts uh, does, and we have some pathogen that renders us incapable of keeping our um, progress going on the technology front and you you just have to imagine how bad that would have to be in order to actually stop the march of progress technology. yes yeah you know we would t- you'd have to have a world where no one understood how to build a computer again and no one ever understood how to build a yeah. computer again going forward. So from that beyond
0: point. canical for Leibowitz type of right. destructiveness.
1: Yeah. So if it's not that bad, we will keep making progress. Yep. And you don't need Moore's law. You just need some... Increment of progress to continue of time, yeah, Yeah. at some rate, yeah, and at some point we will find ourselves in the presence of machines that are smarter than we are because I don't think there's anything magical about the wetware we have in our heads as far as information processing. So, the moment you admit that this can be that that what we call a mind can be implemented on another platform, and there's every reason to admit that scientifically now, And, and I leave questions of consciousness aside. I don't know that consciousness comes along for the ride necessarily if you get intelligent machines. And, and ironically, the most horrible vision is one of building super intelligent unconscious machines. Because in the presence of consciousness, at least you could argue, well, it, if they wipe us out, well, at the very least, we will have built something more important than we are. Right. We will have built gods. We will yeah. have built minds that can take more pleasure in the beauty of the universe than we can. Who knows how good it. it the universe could be inhabited in by their, mind. Hands. Yeah, in their yeah. hands right yeah but if the lights aren't on if we if we've built just mere mechanism that is incredibly powerful that can be goal directed but for whom there is nothing that it's like to be directed toward yeah. those goals uh well that that really strikes me as the worst case scenario
0: because then the lights go out. If we... we go out, so so it sounds like you believe that the super AI is inevitable, unless something the f- the other equally terrible happens. happens. Yes. So our best shot of surviving is to do all we can to make sure the super AI that one day inevitably arises is benign. Yeah, is aligned with our interests.
1: Intelligence is is the best thing we have. really. it's, it's, it's our most valuable resource, right? So it, it is either the source of or the safeguard for everything we care about, right? And there's overwhelming
0: economic incentives for thousands of intensely smart people, intensely well-capitalized companies to go screaming down that path.
1: Yeah, so all of yeah. the incentives are aligned to get into the end zone as quickly as possible. And that is not the alignment we need to get into the end zone as safely as possible. Mm. And it will always be easier to build the recklessly unsafe version then it will be to take the further step of figuring out how to make this thing safe. Yeah. So um, I mean, th- that's what worries me. But, but I, I think it, it is inevitable in some form. And again, I'm not making predictions that, that we're going to have this in 10 years mm-hmm. or 20 years, but I just think at some point and again, and and the human level bit is a bit of a mirage because I think the moment we have something human level, it is superhuman. You yeah, know, it's, it's oh, not it gonna,
0: blows past that. Yeah, yeah. you
1: know, that's a mirage. Yeah, and, and people are imagining somehow that that's a stopping point. It will
0: barely get there. And then we'll stay there for a long time. It could only be the case if we are ourselves at the absolute summit of cognition, which just defies common sense.
1: And we we just know that's not true. We just know it's not true. Just take,
0: you know, the calculator in
1: your phone. I mean, that's not human level. That is omniscient with respect to arithmetic. Yeah. You know, and... You know, just having the, the totality of human knowledge instantaneously accessible through the Internet. I mean, if we hook these things to the Internet, it has a memory that is superhuman yeah. and a, um, an ability to integrate uh, data that is superhuman. So the moment all of these piecemeal cognitive skills cohere in a system that is also... Able to parse natural language perfectly. Yeah, that you, know, you, you can talk to it and it understands. It does what you want. It all the all of the answers to the questions are no longer like series answers where they contain you know howlers. You know every third trial, but they're the most perceptive, best informed, most articulate answers you're getting from any mind you ever interact with. Right. Once those gains are made they won't be unmade. It's like chess. It's like once computers were better at chess than people. And now we're in this this sort of no man's land, which again, which I I think will be fairly brief, where the 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 combination of a person and and a computer is now the best system. But at a certain point, and I'm amazed that anyone doubts this. But at a certain point, I think it, it will obviously be the case that adding the ape to the equation just adds noise to the equation, and and you know the computers will be will be better than than the cyborgs. And once they are, there's no go- going back from that point. And it may not be everything. It may, it may there may be things we neglect to build into our AIs that are, turn out to be important for, you know, human common sense. Or I mean, this is this is the scary thing we don't know what is required to fully align an intelligent system with our well-being you know and and so uh we could neglect to put something like our common sense because we would don't perfectly understand it into these systems and then you can get errors that are deeply counterintuitive that Mm -hmm. are, I mean, this is analogous to, you know, Nick Bostrom's cartoon thought experiment of the the, The the, the paperclip maximizer. I mean, like, well, who would build such a machine? Well, we wouldn't, but we could build a machine that in the service of some goal that was, is obviously a good one could form some instrumental goal that we would never think an intelligent system could form and that we would never think to explicitly prevent. Yeah. And yet this thing is totally antithetical. Yeah, to, it, re- to, it reaches some to local good.
0: equilibrium where it says more paperclips, good. Yeah. Going to do that for a while. Yeah. And soon the universe is paperclips. Well, Sam, you have been um, extravagantly generous with your time. I appreciate well, it. Not, not at all. It's a pleasure. And thank you very kindly. And um, we will, I'm sure, be in, remain in touch.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I wish you the best of luck, uh, needless, needless to say with your book and the podcast and everything else. It's thank uh, you kindly. It's, uh, it's a great idea you're, th- that uh, you're combining both in this way. I think uh, you know, obviously this is the, the frontier of uh, creative use of these new media, and it's, uh, it's great to see you doing it.
2: Rob and I will now discuss the interview and sometimes make specific reference to the novel after On, particularly pages 289 through 380, which are officially on today's roster. So if you're not reading the book, you could be confused by some things we say that you haven't read about. But since you've gotten this far, you'll still probably enjoy the discussion. Whereas if you're planning to read the novel, beware of spoilers. Now, Rob, the political turmoil in the Middle East has some personal resonance for you, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. um, I actually first went to the Middle East for a period of months when I was 17. Um, I was an exchange student. I grew up in southwestern Connecticut, and I became part of this exchange program whose philosophy was, we don't want to just be a travel agency for overprivileged high school kids. So You just tell us that you want to be an exchange student, and then we are going to tell you where you're going. And um, I was uh, of the opinion that it would be great to go to New Zealand. You could express a preference. I told them that. They said, great, you're going to Cairo. So I spent a summer in Cairo when I was 17. And then I got to college, and I had been so intrigued by all that I'd learned and seen and done there that I Basically, majored in Middle Eastern history. Modern Middle Eastern history was technically international relations major, uh, and also studied Arabic at great length. And then when I graduated, I got a Fulbright grant, and I went back to Cairo to live and to get really deep into Arabic, um, and to research the political opposition in Egypt. And I wanted to research both the religious and a religious political opposition, the religious and the secular. But the religious folks wouldn't talk to me. They found it very suspicious that here was this American guy who spoke almost fluent Arabic. It's a lot rustier now, but in those days, it was almost fluent and seems to go to the embassy from time to time. So they, I gave them the creeps. But the secular folks did talk to me. And the secular folks were in a hard position because the Mubarak regime was very tough with all opposition, as they're very well known for. And the religious folks were much more ascendant. They were speaking to a much larger percentage of the Egyptian population than the secular opposition. And so the secular people were getting it from Mubarak. And um, the more violent end of the religious opposition was very uh, opposed to them as well. And a guy named Farag Foda, uh, who was pretty prominent in the secular opposition. He was Christian. About 10% of Egyptians are. Uh, but he also happened to pursue a, a secular uh, approach to, to government. Um, he was somebody I spent a fair amount of time with, and not long after I got home from Cairo, he was assassinated. And that was the beginning of the violent resistance in Egypt, which really hadn't—there had been very little violence in Egypt since Sadat's assassination, which at that point was almost a decade in the past. And that was the beginning of an uptick in violence in Egypt that continues to this day. And so um, I've gone back to the Middle East a great number of times since then. I've done work as an elections observer. I've done not-for-profit work. I've been an advisor, a pro bono advisor to lots of startups. So I, I have a deep history in the region. And it's the, the issue of, of terrorism and general instability is one that I've been focused on just you in know, my spare time and with my spare cycles for decades.
2: We're going to diverge briefly from the topics you talked about with Sam, uh, but you have another personal connection to the storyline that most readers probably aren't aware of.
0: Yeah. So one of the interesting things about Flutter, it's been stated already in the book, is that she is and considers herself to be an orphan. She was, in her case, born um, of—well, I'm not going to go into too much depth of who she was born of, but she considers herself to be an orphan, and that that mention has already been made. And as it happens, um, I was myself born into foster care in New York City. When I was talking to somebody after I'd finished the first draft of this this book and was talking about the principal themes, I mentioned this thing about, you know, belonging and connection to family and and being born to one family and, and trying to find another family and so forth, which, again, no spoilers, but, you know, Flutter's an orphan, so these issues do come up later— And one friend of mine said, Oh, wow, it's so funny that you built in something that is so deeply personal. And I was like, What? I I literally did not see. The connection. I saw the connection with the Middle East stuff. I saw the connection with the tech stuff. Those are big parts of my background that I, that completely missed me. So, um, as we'll get deeper into the book in the second half, these issues will come up. And it is interesting to note that the author was momentarily, for a period of uh, just a very small number of months, uh, technically an orphan. And but I got adopted by a wonderful family in Connecticut that is my family and you know raised me in very stable circumstances. So. Well, you lucked out. I did th- for sure. I definitely did. But
2: it is interesting. Interesting how the templates of our consciousness seep in yes. to
0: our writing. Or flood in and we don't even <laughs> seem to notice it until somebody points it out two years into the project.
2: <laughs> okay, let's return to the grim topic of militarized nihilism uh, that you and Sam discussed. Tell us a bit more about this Jash al-Hissab uh, movement that figures very prominently in the novel,
0: yeah. So Jeshil Hassab, which has already been, uh, you know, in the book, is clearly a super, super, super nihilistic organization, and it goes beyond any organization that is out there right now in its in its nihilism. And also, I'll say that all of its precepts run very, very counter to any orthodox or even fringe interpretations of Islam. Uh, unfortunately, that can be said of a lot of violent organizations that their their interpretations of Islam have very little, if any, basis in in Islamic scripture. Um, but that is absolutely true of Jaishal hasab So they are a work of fiction. That's not me playing my science fiction writer card, that's me playing my horror writer card. Uh, but they are based really on two actual historic um, things. So first of all, the organization uh, has a lot in common with Boko Haram, which rose up in Nigeria and is a really, really terribly violent, unbelievably brutal organization, famous for kidnapping hundreds of schoolgirls and a lot of other just and awful the, the stuff. the name literally means Western education is prohibited. Is Haram. Is is haram. Pro- yeah. is, is prohibited. And Jeish Hasab. hassab or Geish al-Hassab, as I'd say in Egyptian Arabic, basically means army of reckoning. And so it's all about the day of reckoning, which is when, you know, Judgment Day is my fictitious creation. The other thing that Geish al-Hassab is sort of based on is a person named Anwar al-Awlaki, who was an American citizen, but also a very, very radical... Imam, and uh, also Yemeni. And he he was a famous case some years ago, because he was the first American citizen that we deliberately, we, the United States, not we, Rob and Tom, for those of you who are listening, the United States deliberately targeted for assassination with a drone, uh, with a drone strike from a predator. And he is well known because he speaks, absolutely spoke, Absolutely flawless idiomatic English, and so the sermons that he delivered on terrorism and how it's perfectly reasonable and just to slaughter civilians at home have inspired a number of English-speaking um, radicals, such as the person who perpetrated the Fort Hood atrocity, uh, such as the so-called underwear bomber, and others, because he speaks in this very accessible English. So, Jaish al-Hassab is emerged from. Uh, a terrible uh, military situation, civil war situation in Central Africa, like Boko Haram, and it also features this charismatic person who infects people with ideas because of his k- charisma and his immaculate mastery of language. So that's where Jaisal Hasab comes from. Rob? Yes? Thankfully, authors of science fiction and thrillers
2: are under no obligation to write about things they think will actually happen, right? Mm-hmm. How worried are you really about... Synthetic biology terrorism?
0: Well, um, you know, this is going to harken back to some of the stuff that we talked about with our Andy Hessel episode, but that was a few weeks ago. I actually think, well, first of all, just to recap that what's called the Carlson curve, which is which tracks the speed at which synthetic biology is getting better and better and cheaper and cheaper. As I mentioned previously um, a few weeks ago, that is moving so much faster than Moore's law curve. And we all know how transformative that's been. It is only a matter of time before lots and lots of people, not just carefully vetted geniuses in high-end labs, have the ability to potentially do terrible things with synthetic biology. And unless we freak out about it a lot now and in the coming decades, we could be in a situation in which lots of people will be in a position to hit print and do terrible things. And as I mentioned at the end of the interview with Sam, we don't, the, the bad guys don't have to do 95% of the heavy lifting there. Their raw material is that tiny, tiny fraction of incredibly unhappy people who are going to commit suicide this year. And that's about a million people worldwide. A tiny fraction of them are going to be in a state of mind where they're willing to take as many people with them as possible. And as I mentioned in the interview with Sam, the force multiplier when somebody gets to that place is weaponry. They have mass stabbings in China. That kills fewer people than mass shootings in the United States where guns are widely available. If you have an airplane like that German Wings pilot, Andreas Lubitz, or Osama bin Laden's people, you kill a lot more people than those who do not have airplanes. When synthetic biology gets to this hyper-distributed state I don't know how we keep an eye on perhaps a million people who may do something awful to themselves and a fraction might do something awful to the world if they're in that position. The only way I can think of, and this is scary, the only source of surveillance that could possibly keep a lid on that in my mind, and hopefully this is just a failure of imagination on my part, and somebody else, perhaps a listener, will come up with a better idea. But to me, that would be a good job for benign super AI. A super AI of the sort that we have talked about in the book, a secret agent, Brock Hogan, has warned us about, could be, as stated in a couple places in the book, functionally omniscient because it would be ubiquitous in the network, and it could be functionally omnipotent because it would probably master things like nanotechnology that lie deep in our future. If that super AI were hearing everything and loved us as much as we would like it to love us, it would be in a position, like Flutter in the book, to derail almost any kind of plot. So it's almost super AIs can't live with them, can't live without them. That is a really, really interesting and important dichotomy to me. And they're both scary paths. I don't know what the third one is where we don't deal with either one of those things. I'd sure like to find it. Um, but that's something that I'm wrestling with as a result of having written this novel and as a result of having done all the research that went into it and the follow-on research that you and I are doing for these podcasts. You
2: couldn't just be satisfied with one doomsday scenario, could nope. you? Gotta have two. Gotta have two. Gotta which, have two. Which are you more worried about? Super AI or terrorists,
0: Or is it equal? I'm worried about the fact that I really have no idea which one I'm more worried about. Um, I think it's something that we have to have some of the brightest people in our society who understand these technologies very, very deeply, really thinking very, very hard about. Now, the good news is folks like Elon Musk, have donated significant amounts of money to look at uh, super AI safety. And we do actually have some of the brightest people in society when it comes to thinking about where computers might be in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, starting to think very, very careful, careful about super AI safety. I'm sure there are others who are thinking about SynBio, but however many there are it's impossible to have too many people thinking about it. So I guess I'm equally scared about both, and what scares me is I usually have a pretty good opinion about which of two things scare me more, and in this case, I don't.
2: Uh, Okay, so the destruction of humanity as a squad goal aside, let's try to end on a slightly cheerier note. How about that decrypted file that explains why it's so awesome to use a social network to get everybody to agree To surveillance? Wherever did you get that from?
0: Well, you must be talking about Flutter's Eula or the War and Peace of Eulas, as the Whistleblowings blog described it. Um, I actually got that from interviews with Cindy Cohn and some of the people who work at EFF before I started writing the book. So unfortunately, they're not on tape because I was just scribbling notes back then. I didn't know what I was going to write about. Um, But one of the people who worked for her made me aware of a study that I cited actually in an earlier podcast, in which it states that it would take all humans, on average, one and a half months per year just to read the privacy agreements of the websites that they use. Now, I'll add that in most websites, the privacy agreement is shorter than the EULA. And um, the things you can get somebody to agree to in a EULA basically has no bounds. And also many EULAs, as Facebook and others have shown, write in the EULA that it is incumbent upon you to keep track of changes in the EULA because you are bound not only by that EULA but by future versions of the EULA. And um, Facebook does push out these notifications that we all delete without reading. I'm sure that says, "Hey, we've updated our EULA, our privacy agreement." So it really is probably a full time job to read that stuff. Um, so I don't know if that's a lot more cheerful than the super AI. Or <laughs> actually, you know, it's more cheerful because that's just like legalese. It's not destruction of human. Manic. relatively so, speaking so that is yeah. an interesting topic and I'm glad that you raised it
2: now there's a lot of interesting topics uh we're, we're so far into the book with there's there's social shaming there's decryption by quantum computing we've talked about that before but Rob let's talk about tapeworms mm-hmm. tapeworms being good for you mm-hmm. because they keep the immune system from being bored yeah this is this is not an essential part of the plot necessarily but well it might really be.
0: We, it might be we don't want to spoil anything people keep an eye on those tapeworms that may just be red herring Or Red Tape (laughs) Worm. Yes, there are people who are actually pretty smart. Uh, Who believe just that. And so this is sort of um, the over-sanitization theory. I don't know if it's called that, but let's just call it that. There are folks who have argued that we have so sanitized our world that people grow up without enough exposure to germs and basically become incredibly vulnerable. You didn't used to have peanut allergies. And now peanut allergies are incredibly widespread amongst younger folks, and we don't really know why. But one kind of fun, quote-unquote, explanation might be that we have scrubbed so much stuff uh, that kids just can't handle stuff now um, a derivative of that theory and I'm I, I don't know it well enough to uh, utter it articulately, but basically, a derivative of that theory has it that if you have a parasite in your system, it's particularly good for toning down autoimmune conditions. Because autoimmune conditions are basically your own immune system attacking your system. And it can lead to, you know, mild but embarrassing circumstances like, you know, dandruff. Um That can be an autoimmune condition. It can lead to terrible things like, you know, basically, this is a retrovirus, but AIDS turns into being an autoimmune condition, and there's lots of them. And so there are folks who think that if your immune system is so underemployed and so bored that it's starting to give you dandruff or or create other things that are even worse, maybe you give it a hobby. And a tapeworm could be just such a hobby. And there was um, a really good This American Life episode years ago, in which the guy was talking actually about hookworm and convinced that it had cured him of some awful condition. Mm. So that that school of thought is out there. But in the in the four corners of this novel, obviously that was kind of a comedic scene with these lunatics chasing the latest fad. And I'll just say there are quite a few health-related fads in Silicon Valley that have to do with crazy diets, that have to do with crazy exercise regimes, that have to do with crazy sleep regimes, that have to do with all kinds of stuff. And it was a little bit fun to spoof that by talking about our character Raj being really fired up about getting a tapeworm.
2: Well, I would like to see more evidence-based research confirming this before I'm going to put a tapeworm Yes. In my own
0: self, I would
2: water, rather have that as well. Yes. Certainly, and I, I hope everyone considers that as well. But that was really funny. So next week we finally get to the the guts of the novel, and we talk about the risk of super AI. We'll be covering pages three hundred eighty through four hundred sixty four, and our guest could be a,
0: a super AI. Could be. We're going to keep that a secret until next week. You're going to have to tune in to find out who that guest is. So, ours Technical listeners, here we conclude the fourth and final installment of my interview with Sam Harris. I do hope you enjoyed it. In case you're interested, the current episode of my podcast is an interview with Great Britain's astronomer royal, Martin Rees. Martin and I talk about the most eerie and violent phenomena in the known universe, specifically gamma-ray bursts in the violent department, and fast radio bursts in the Eerie Department. We also spent a great deal of time discussing the existential risks society might face in the 21st century. You can find the Martin Rees episode by visiting my site at after-on.com or just type the words after on into your favorite podcast player and scroll through the episodes and there you'll find lots of stuff about life sciences, above all genomics and synthetic biology, conversations about robotics, privacy and government hacking, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, drones, and a whole lot more. Or you could just join me next week here on ours, when we will be serializing another episode from the archives.